You're listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled Optimizing LDLC Management in the Post-MI Patient is brought to you by Vox Media and supported by an educational donation from Amgen. Before beginning this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Here's your host, Dr. Hector Chapa. Low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, or LDLC for short, is a primary cause of atherosclerosis, and LDLC reduction continues to be a central focus of cardiovascular risk reduction. Fortunately, clinicians can significantly reduce patients' cardiovascular risk after a myocardial infarction by lowering their LDLC. But how exactly can clinicians go about doing so? Welcome to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Hector Chapa, and joining me today is Dr. Mark Sabatine. Dr. Sabatine is chairman of the Timmy Study Group, and he's also the Lewis Dexter Chair in Cardiovascular Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He's also a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Sabatine, it's a real pleasure and an honor to have you. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Dr. Chapa. It's a pleasure to be here today. A very, very important topic. So to start us off, Dr. Sabatine, can you please summarize the pharmacological therapies for lowering LDLC and how effective are they? Luckily, we're blessed by having uh, multiple different approved therapies. I'll start with statins, which are the foundation for our LDL cholesterol lowering therapy. They inhibit HMG-CoA reductase. That's an enzyme responsible for cholesterol synthesis inside hepatocytes. And so by decreasing the intrahepatocyte cholesterol content, that then triggers upregulation of the LDL receptor, and then more LDL is cleared from the circulation. These drugs reduce LDL cholesterol by up to 50% if you're giving a high-intensity stand, so around the 50-55%, depending on which particular drug you give in the dose. Then we have our non-statin therapies. The first among them is azetamide. This is a drug that inhibits neiman pick c one like one protein. That's a protein that's involved in absorption of dietary cholesterol, and azetamide lowers LDL cholesterol by about 24% or so, sort of a, a moderate LDL cholesterol-lowering drug. Then we have the PCSK9 inhibitors. Two of them are currently approved, uh, evolocumab and alirocubab, both monoclonal antibodies. As the name would suggest, these inhibit PCSK9. That's a protein that, that normally helps chaperone the LDL receptor to its destruction in a hepatocyte after it's internalized an LDL particle. By inhibiting PCSK9, that allows the LDL receptor to recirculate back to the surface of the hepatocyte, where it can then clear more LDL out of the circulation. These drugs are very potent LDL cholesterol lung drugs. They lower levels by about 60%, and in fact, really a high degree of consistency. So the vast majority of patients will will be right around that 60% reduction range. And then lastly, we have bempidoic acid. This is a drug that inhibits ATP citrate lyase. That's another enzyme in the cholesterol synthesis pathway in hepatocytes. And so like statins, then 
triggers increased expression of LDL receptors on hepatocytes and more clearance of LDL from the circulation. It reduces LDL cholesterols by about 18% or so. So again, kind of a, a moderate LDL cholesterol lowering drug. You see, and this is amazing to me. This is why I think these programs have such value because statins were just a foundation for so long. And it's great to see that other things are available to help these patients. But now, Dr. Sabatine, I want to really get into a specific high-risk group, which are those who have experienced an MI. So if we specifically focus on lowering LDLC in patients who have experienced an MI, what do the guidelines recommend for this patient population? So we have two sets of guidelines that we could turn to for guidelines. Guidance, the AHA, ACC, multi-society guidelines that came out in 2018, as well as the European guidelines that came out the subsequent year in 2019. And start with the U.S. guidelines for patients, as you described, with NMI or even more broadly with clinical atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Those patients are then put into two bins. One bin are the patients who are considered very high risk. Those are individuals who have had a major event. By that, we mean a myocardial infarction, just as you described, or a stroke or symptomatic peripheral arterial disease with typically some high-risk conditions, or they've had two multiple ma major ASCVD events. For those individuals, there's a clear mandate for high-intensity statin therapy after that, the guidelines are a little more conservative, and so they give a two-way recommendation if a patient's LDL cholesterol is above a threshold of 70 milligrams per deciliter to add azetamide. Not really clear what the basis for that threshold was. It doesn't match what we studied in the Improve It trial that we can talk about in a few minutes, but if the LDL cholesterol is higher than that, then there's a two-way recommendation for considering to add azetamide. Probably 2A, because as we'll see, the LDL lowering, therefore the risk reduction is, is relatively modest, but nonetheless, it gives patients a benefit. And then there's also a 2A recommendation then to add a PCSK9 inhibitor, again, if the LDL cholesterol is at or above 70 milligrams per, per deciliter. And then sort of the other limb of that guideline is ASCVD not at very high risk. And then there's some ageism there, where if you're at or under 75 years, it's recommended to get a high-intensity statin. If you're older than 75 years, then one could just initiate a moderate-intensity statin. There's really no scientific basis for then. All these patients should get a high-intensity statin. I'll say that the, the European guidelines, which came out the subsequent year, I had the privilege of being on the writing committee for that as the sole American amongst the Europeans there. It was a fun experience, and I really have to give them credit for putting together really all of the data, not just sort of narrowly importing in the specific clinical trial designs. And so, you know, their approach for high-risk patients is to target a more aggressive goal. And rather than having a threshold to initiate therapy, they talk about a target, which I think makes more sense for a risk factor. And so their target is an LDL cholesterol under 55 milligrams per deciliter for patients, for example, who've had an MI. I'll say in the the backroom conversations, there was a discussion that the data, and we'll, I think, get to this in a little bit, really would support even lower targets, even under 40 milligrams per deciliter. But the 55 was already a major step forward. And so that gets the class one recommendation. But there's also a clause we have in there that for patients who are experiencing recurrent vascular events, despite taking a maximally tolerated statin therapy, 
that they really do need more LDL cholesterol lowering. And then for them, the target is actually under 40 milligrams per deciliter. So those are the guidelines we have on both sides of the Atlantic. So, Dr. Sabatine, that's why we have people like you, because these guidelines, which are ever-changing and honestly quite varied from American to the European, that's why we need these reminders. So thank you for doing that. That was a great reminder of what these guidelines say. But that leads me to my next question. Now that we know what the guidelines say, and we know those are key, but here's a real question. (laughs) Are those goals actually being met by the treatments that are out there? So what can you say about that? Again, clinical practice is one thing and guidelines are the other, but what does it really look like in practice? How are we doing? You're absolutely right, Dr. Chapa. There is the chasm between doing the clinical trial, which is what we do for a living here at the Timmy Study Group, and showing the benefit. Then the guideline committee say, yes, this is you know a great advantage here and a great advance for the field. So now it's in the guidelines, but the point you raise is, okay, but what's happening for our patients? Are clinicians actually prescribing it or patients actually taking it? Because obviously, you know, in our country, there's a series of barriers between what's in the guideline, the patient actually taking the medicine, including our health care system, which is, you know, sort of quite Byzantine and complicated. And, and so people have studied this issue and the results are quite frankly very disappointing. And so in a variety of different registries and cohorts, you know, probably about half or so of the patients will get to the less stringent, if you will, U.S. threshold or target to be under 70 milligrams per deciliter. And it's not for lack of ability to do it. It's just that it's not happening. They're not being prescribed the high-intensity stand. They're not being prescribed the non-statin therapy that, as Imagine will talk about, has been shown to be beneficial. And so in a variety of registries, one, the the Gould Registry, just the two-year data just published, that in just following individuals, you know, again, it was under half of patients had an LDL cholesterol under 70. And so there's a lot of clinical inertia out there, which is really a shame because we have these therapies and yet they're not being used. I totally agree. And it's the same thing, I think, in any discipline, whether it's, you know, internal medicine, family medicine, cardiovascular health, OBGYN for me, we have guidelines and it's just so hard for us for a variety of reasons, as you very well stated, to get there, which again goes into my next point is especially for these patients that we're the most concerned about and the ones that give us the most fear and worry are those patients who have already had a cardiovascular event, like a myocardial infarction. So if we're not meeting these goals... What does that mean as a risk factor for a cardiovascular event in the early period after somebody's had one of these issues, like an MI? What's their risk of having another one if we're not meeting these guidelines? Yep. Unfortunately, it's simply too high. And we know that patients are at risk after they have an event for a variety of reasons. One, having the event just already puts them in a higher risk group. In the setting of a myocardial infarction, there can be an increased degree of inflammation that can lead to plaque instability. And a higher risk of plaque rupture in the near term. And so looking at the risk for events in the next year or two after the MI, that a sizable proportion of patients, I'd say 10 to 15% of patients are going to have another myocardial infarction or stroke or cardiovascular death or need some type of cardiovascular revascularization. We have the tools to prevent this and yet the patients remain undertreated and we're seeing that the event rates are high. These are serious conditions which do require attention to their therapeutic regimen. And that's a great reminder is that we, we've really got to do much better in getting where we need to be specifically with the regards to, to lowering this LDL cholesterol. 
For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Hector Chapa, and here with me to discuss how we can lower LDL cholesterol in patients who have experienced myocardial infarction is really a world leader in this area, Dr. Mark Sabatine. So, Dr. Sabatine, now that we have a better understanding of a patient's cardiovascular risk after myocardial infarction, I want to take a look at the data behind some of these new treatment options. What is the data using azetamide for cardiovascular risk reduction in the early period after myocardial infarction? Thanks for that question. So when we studied this in the IMPROVE-IT trial, which was led by by Chris Cannon in our group, and and the the notion here was to see, would adding a non-STEN LDL cholesterol-lowering drug like azetamide, we know it, it lowered LDL cholesterol. The question is, would it make a difference in cardiovascular events? And so in the IMPROVE-IT trial, we enrolled over 18,000 patients who had had a recent acute coronary syndrome within the past 10 days. Their LDL was at least 50 milligrams per, per deciliter. All of them got background statin therapy. They were all on, on simvastatin and then uh, randomly allocated to get either azetamide or, or not. And so azetamide, first of all, lowered LDL cholesterol levels. So we deliberately designed the inclusion criteria in the trial so that the simvastatin alone arm would achieve an LDL cholesterol of 70 milligrams per deciliter because that's what the guidelines had as the new target. And so we really wanted a, a twofer from Improve It, first to show that adding a non-statin to a statin would reduce events, and secondly, to challenge that notion that 70 was the threshold, that there was some sort of hockey stick-shaped relationship, that once you got your LDL to 70, there'd be no further benefit. And so the experimental arm, the simvastatin plus azetamib arm, then achieved an LDL cholesterol in the, the mid to low 50 milligram per, per deciliter range. And so with that difference in LDL cholesterol, there was a significant reduction in the risk of cardiovascular events. Now, the magnitude of that reduction was just a 6.4% relative risk reduction. Now, that may seem small, but that's also because the delta, the difference between the two arms was relatively small because azetamide, as I mentioned, is a relatively weak to moderate LDL cholesterol lowering drug. And we enrolled patients who already had very low LDL cholesterol levels, far lower than in practice, where for people with ASCVD, their LDL cholesterol levels are kind of 90 to 100 milligrams per deciliter. So we set a high bar for ourselves, but the magnitude of reduction was exactly what one would expect given the amount of LDL lowering. So people have looked at this relationship with statins and shown that for each millimole per liter, that's close to 40 milligrams per deciliter, each millimole per liter reduction in LDL cholesterol translates to about a a 20% or so reduction in clinical events. And so because we reduced LDL cholesterol by about a third of that, we saw about a third of that or about a 7% risk reduction. So all that was good for reducing risk. And and luckily, the drug was extremely well tolerated. So in this large trial of 18,000 patients followed for a mean of six years, no difference in any of the safety outcomes. LFTs were fine, no gallbladder-related issues, no difference in myopathy between the, the two arms. So all very reassuring for azetamide. That's fantastic. And I got to tell you, I've read many of LDL papers, and there's nothing like hearing it from somebody closely involved with these trials. So I really do appreciate you getting into that. Now, I want to change tracks a little bit because I want to zero in on 
PCSK9 inhibitors. So what does the data for cardiovascular risk reduction in the early period after MI look like for those drugs? Great question. To set the stage, two drugs have been studied in cardiovascular outcomes trials, evolocumab that we studied in the Fourier trial, and alirocumab that was studied in Odyssey outcomes. Fourier came out first in, in 2017. We studied over 27,000 patients with a prior MI, prior stroke, or PAD. Evolocumab reduced LDL cholesterols by 60%. That's on top of statin therapy. We got uh, patients down on average to LDL cholesterol levels of 30 milligrams per deciliter, the lowest of, of any cardiovascular outcomes trial that, that, that's been done to date. So amazingly low levels of LDL cholesterol. This then translated into highly significant reductions in cardiovascular events, the 15% reduction in a broad primary endpoint, and more importantly, a 20% reduction in the risk of CV death, MI, or stroke. I'll also point out that, as has been well documented for statins, that the benefit of LDL cholesterol lowering grows with time. And we saw, for example, a 16% reduction in CV death, MI, or stroke in the first year. But beyond the first year, there was a 25% risk reduction. And so that probably more closely approximates the benefit that would be seen long-term with such therapy. As I mentioned, the other trial was Odyssey Outcomes that looked at patients with an acute coronary syndrome anywhere from one to 12 months earlier. It too reduced LDL cholesterol levels, in their case down to about 40 milligrams per deciliter, also showed a significant reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events, a 15% reduction. And for a trial that went longer, our median follow-up was only 2.2 years. Theirs was closer to three years, a nominal reduction in all-cause mortality. So, so overall, for the, these two very large trials, you know, in total over 40,000 patients in the trials, highly significant reductions in major adverse cardiovascular events. And the flip side, for safety, very reassuring data. So no imbalances for serious adverse events, allergic reactions, slight excess of injection site reactions, not unexpected for an injectable drug, but relatively modest. And, and then for the, the, some of the adverse events that rightly or wrongly we worry about with statins and or with LDL cholesterol lowering, no difference in myositis, elevated aminotransferases, cataracts, new onset diabetes, neurocognitive, all very reassuring for, for all of that. Now, before getting into the recent MI, I will comment on what I think is my, my favorite subgroup from the trial. That's the 2,000 patients from Fourier who came in with a baseline LDL cholesterol under 70 milligrams per deciliter. Now, as we discussed earlier, those would be patients who, per the current U.S. guidelines, we'd say they don't need any further therapy, be honest then, because they're, they're under this artificial bar here of 70 milligrams per deciliter. Um, in this group here, their median was 66 milligrams per deciliter. Evolocumab dropped the LDL cholesterol levels by over 60%, so the, the achieved LDL cholesterol. And the evolocumab arm was a median of, of 21 milligrams per deciliter, so amazingly low levels. And the question is, you know, did these patients benefit? And the answer is yes. And they enjoyed just as much clinical benefit as their counterparts who came in with higher levels of LDL cholesterol. So 30% reduction in CV, death, MI, or stroke in these individuals. So I think these data point to the fact that the U.S. guidelines really are too conservative and that having this threshold of 70 for treatment is not supported by the data. Patients who are under 70 can benefit 
from further LDL cholesterol lowering. And, and in fact, in, in analyses we did looking at the association now between achieved LDL cholesterol and the risk of CV death and Myers stroke. So using Fourier like a Framingham heart study as an observational cohort now, th there was a monotonic, nearly linear relationship. The lower the LDL cholesterol, the lower the risk of CV death and Myers stroke. And it was not a hockey stick shaped relationship. It was essentially a straight line going all the way down, even to LDL cholesterol levels in, in the teens. And likewise, for those who achieved LDL cholesterol levels below 20 milligrams per deciliter, no excess for, for any of the safety events. So, so really, I, I think very powerful and reassuring data for lowering LDL cholesterol. Now, you asked a great question. What about those who are, are closest to their MI? We talked earlier about how those individuals are at, at, at higher risk for events, and that's what we saw in Fourier. So for individuals within the first year from their MI, their risk was higher and their benefit tended to be greater. So their relative risk reduction for CV death and Myers stroke was 25%. So reducing their risk of events by a quarter and given the higher baseline risk, a 3% absolute decrease over three years. So meaning a number needed to treat to prevent a cardiovascular death and Myers stroke of only 32 patients treated for three years. And that's a big thing. We always know number needed to treat, and that's an incredible. That, I mean, that's that's good to know because usually you get a one in you know two hundred, one in three hundred, but this is really striking numbers. Now, I also want to talk about initiation of this therapy. So we know that some of these medications, of course, can be started in a hospital setting. But what about the PCSK nine inhibitors? Is there any evidence for PCSK nine inhibitor initiation in the hospital setting? Yeah, well, that, that's another great question because you know, when we do these large cardiovascular outcomes trials, in general, it's um, prudent to study stable patients, at least for the first big outcomes trial. And that's what was done in, in both Fourier and Odyssey outcomes, where we waited for patients to be at least four weeks out from their acute coronary syndrome, sort of you know, after the dust has settled, if you will. But there's really no reason why one would think that the benefit wouldn't start accruing immediately in these individuals. And so several studies have looked at that. One is the EVOPAX trial led by Francois Mach and colleagues from Europe. They looked at several hundred patients with an acute coronary syndrome and randomized them right during their ACS, which is a wonderful time to look at these patients, sort of an intervenable, teachable moment. And so all patients got background therapy of atorvastatin 40 milligrams, so a high-intensity statin. And then one arm got placebo and the other got evolocumab added to it and then looked at what the changes were in LDL cholesterol. As one might imagine, the group that got evolocumab then had much lower levels of LDL cholesterol. So the group without it, their LDL cholesterols were in sort of the 80 milligram per deciliter range. It's actually somewhat better than what we see in, in the United States because not everyone's on a high intensity statin, but still doesn't even meet the U.S. target and certainly doesn't meet the, the European target. Whereas in the arm that got evolocumab, right by week four, already their LDL cholesterol was down to about 30 milligrams per, per deciliter. And so, so you know, they would then get the levels down to what not only the U.S., but also the European guidelines would recommend. And if you analyze the data that way in terms of what fraction of the patients then fall into that bin, if you're just treated with a high-intensity statin, then only about a third or so achieve the U.S. target and only about 10% achieve the European target of under 55 milligrams per deciliter. But 
if you add a PCSK9 inhibitor, then that's greater than 90% for both targets. So very, very striking data there. Incredible. All right, Dr. Sabatine, as we're rounding the bend here, coming towards the end of our time together, I really want you to bring this all together. So can you summarize key management steps for clinicians treating LDLC? And what specifically should they be telling their patients about LDLC after a myocardial infarction? Happy to summarize it. These are such important points. So I think if one were to have one take-home point, it really is that for LDL cholesterol, lowest for longest is best. You really can't get it too low. And the longer you have it low, the better the outcomes. And we didn't get into that today, but you can see that for plaque regression on imaging studies, and we see it for clinical outcomes. So that translates into early intensive lowering of LDL cholesterol. Certainly our foundation remains high intensity statin therapy. You know, that can give your patients about a 50% reduction. But then to achieve the targets that we've shown are beneficial for patients, one is likely going to need to add non-statin therapy. And we've talked about azetamibe, which lowers LDL cholesterol by about 24%. And then the PCSK9 inhibitors, evolocumab, alirocumab, which lower LDL cholesterol by about 60%. And so both those classes have been shown to further reduce cardiovascular risk in these patients. And then as we think about from a a patient-centric point of view, it's so important to tell them why lowering LDL cholesterol is important to help keep their arteries open to prevent the risk of heart attack and stroke, and to remind them that LDL cholesterol-lowering therapies are lifelong therapies. I'm always struck by how for our patients, we take care of them when they come in with their acute coronary syndrome, we put them on these medications, they go home, and a month later, three months later, they're on the phone with the clinic saying, I feel great now. Do I really need to be on, on these medications? Well, you know, hypercholesterolemia, like hypertension, it's a silent killer, not symptomatic with it, but it is a killer, and they, they need to stay on these therapies. And by doing so, they will live longer and they'll feel better. Well, I definitely learned something. And honestly, Dr. Sabatine, it's been an incredible pleasure talking with somebody who's just so knowledgeable and, and so closely tied to these trials. I've really enjoyed this time together. So with those important management strategies in mind, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Mark Sabatine, for speaking with me and our ReachMD audience. Dr. Sabatine, an incredible program. Thank you for your leadership in this area and for your time. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure to be here today. This activity was brought to you by Vox Media and was supported by an educational donation from Amgen. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.